G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Um, in preparation for my, just before we get into the text, in preparation for my trip to um, Indonesia, uh, Compassion's quite a large um, uh, uh, company, um, organisation, thank you for th- helping me there. Uh, and, and so they, they do the preparation really quite well. They've put together a bunch of videos uh, for us. Um, one of the big things that they're uh, trying to prepare us for is the poverty that we're going to be um, seeing and experiencing and, and uh, be confronted by. They want to prepare us emotionally for that. They want to prepare us as a team um, to uh, face that together, but they want to prepare us spiritually as well. Now, in one of the uh, videos, uh, really well-produced videos, uh, very well done, uh, they had a South American pastor from Brazil named uh, Claudio Oliver uh, he spent decades with the urban poor and uh, young people as uh, particularly, and he asked this question uh, of us, you know, through the video, what is poverty? And the expectation, I suppose, is that the way that you answer that problem, the way that you define the problem of poverty, uh, will have a significant influence on what you think the solution to poverty is. You know, how you define it is going to go a long way toward... Um, I guess, shaping your expectations of what the solution's going to be. So let's think about that for a moment. How do you define what poverty is? What is the heart of it? Um, Claudio Oliver, uh, he then goes to put a little scenario to us, um, and it'll only take us a moment to do, so let's do it together. He says, I want you to imagine for a moment that everything that you have, everything, was taken away. Um, You lost your house, Uh, lost your immediate family, uh, lost all of your money and uh, and your job as well, so you're fired from that for some reason. You lost your possessions, so you got no car, you can't just go and sleep in that. Uh, Bank account's empty, all of your backup plans are gone, right? The lot of it. Everything's gone. Now, what he wants us to do is focus not so much on the emotional toll of that, but just practically. Uh, He wants us to imagine that those things are all gone. And then Oliver asks three questions. So putting aside the grief, three practical questions. If you had lost absolutely everything, how long would it take you to be able to get a meal, do you think? That's a pretty simple question. How long would it take you to be able to get a meal? Second question, if you lost everything, how long would it take you uh, to find shelter? So a place to stay the night tonight, uh, perhaps for a couple of nights, to keep you off the streets, do you understand? You can't sleep in your car, that's gone. Third one, how long would it take you uh, to find a job? And I just mean any job, not necessarily in the area of expertise, something just to establish a little trickle, just a starting point. How long would it take you to find work? So Oliver, Claudio Oliver says uh, that he, he asks these questions to people very much like us uh, and given a little bit of time to think about it, that the answers tend to come back pretty similarly. How long would it take you to get a meal? Well, uh, minutes probably, uh, if we think about it a little bit, because you may not have money but you've got people that you can go to, I suspect. 
Um, don't you? Friends who would feed you, in fact, would be delighted to be able to help you by feeding you. They, they'd probably want to feed you more than you were able to manage. How long would it take you to find shelter? Um, perhaps a little bit longer, really. Hours, though. Uh, not minutes, maybe, but hours. Certainly by tonight. We'd have something figured out, wouldn't we? How long would it take you to find work? Uh, now here, uh, in his experience, estimates vary a fair bit more, and I guess there's an awful lot of factors involved in that. But let's take an average, he says. Uh, a week, some of them. If you're just trying to find a trickle of money, something, anything, just a place to start. That was Claudio Oliver summarising what he's experienced talking to people like us, uh, running them through this exercise. Minutes for a meal, hours for shelter and a week for work. So if we're thinking about poverty then, final question, how come we can fix it so fast? And do you know his answer? He looks, into the, he looks us in the eye, down into the camera, and he says this, you can fix it so fast because you are not poor. Poverty, he says, is not not having money. It's not not having a car. It's not not, poverty is having no friends. There's an interesting definition. Truly poor people do not have friends who have the means and the will to fly to their friend's aid. Like this Samaritan man who we meet in Luke chapter 10, travelling the Jericho Road. Now, is that a bit of a simplistic view of poverty? Um, yeah, of course it is. Is there more to it than that? Of course there is. I'm sure Claudio Oliver would uh, admit that and explore that far more. But I raise it this morning because I'd like us to come to Luke chapter 10 today with these two things in mind. Whether or not I choose, whether or not you choose, uh, whether you choose to be a neighbour to one who is uh, a beaten soul in this world or perhaps you choose not to, uh, whether you choose to be a neighbour to that beaten soul may well determine whether or not he or she lives, uh, finds life, finds God even in the world. But why we choose to help or not, why we choose to help one broken soul may well determine whether or not we live. That's the conundrum that I want us to think through. Whether we choose to help the broken person may make the difference between life and death for them, but why, the reason, the motivation, what's behind it, the cause, the heart, why we choose to help or not may well decide life or death for us. There is more to this passage, familiar though it may be, than just telling us we've got to try harder, we've got to love more, we've got to go further, we've got to give extra. Can we pray as we come to Luke chapter 10, please? Let's pray together. Oh, great God, our God of compassion to the suffering, our God of mercy to the downtrodden, our God of all comfort, may these familiar stories, these famous stories, these delightful couple of stories from your word, may they not fall on deaf ears and dead hearts today among us. Would you awaken and inspire us, please, to hear again of the beautiful life that we're being called to in these passages, called by the one whose beautiful life was broken and buried for us. God, may Jesus make an impression on us today. 
may he leave an impression in us, just as he made in his friends uh, Martha and Mary on that day way back then. And Father, as a side note, would you please multiply gratitude within us and amongst us and from our lips? We do recognise, especially when we just begin to scratch the surface, we are stupendously rich. Uh, Perhaps not every one of us here on every single measure of what riches is, but God, you have been good to us and we do want to overflow with grateful, thankful, delighted praise to you for that. So make us more attuned and aware of that, we ask, please. And we ask for your help as we turn to this text. In Jesus' name, Amen. What must I do? What must I do? That's where we begin. We've got four questions that crop up in this passage on the way through. I've I've grouped these two stories together. I think you're going to see why in a few moments' time. And across the two stories, there are four questions that we're going to kind of hang our exploration of uh, this this episode, uh, this sermon on. And the first is this, what must I do? So Luke chapter 10, verse 25, have you got it there? On one occasion... An expert in the law, and, and that of course is talking about the Old Testament law, uh, the law given by Moses, not Roman law of the time, certainly not modern law of course. No, God's particular law for God's ancient people at a particular time and place in history, an expert in the law. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Uh, He, as in Jesus, replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Uh, Aren't we supposed to get the impression, don't you think, Uh, that Jesus and this man, they are using the same words, you know, they're they're agreeing on what the definition, on what the the law, the summary of the law, what he must do, they are using the same words, but I think we're supposed to get the impression that they mean quite different things. Uh, Would you agree with my assessment there? Do you get that impression? I I guess it becomes crystal clear in the next question, which we'll come to in just a moment, who is my neighbour? They seem to have wildly different expectations about how that question's going to go, don't they? But even here. Now, I think the normal thing, uh, certainly the thing that I've heard many times over, the normal thing for preachers to do at this point is to say something like this. Well, this expert in the law, his problem is obvious. You can see it, actually, in his very opening words. It's there in his question, what must I do? Emphasis on the last word. This law expert's problem is that he thinks laws must lead to the Lord. Right? Here stands a man who believes that he can do his way to God. Have you ever met someone like that? Have you ever been someone like that? I actually think there's probably a little bit of that, at least, in all of us, uh, in our more anxious moments, perhaps, eager to prove ourselves, some little crisis within, maybe we've fallen down in some area or another and, and we want to find real life, we want to get back on track, how do I find God? Well, I've just, I've just I've got to figure out, I've got to do the right thing, so I've got to find the right rules for life and then do them. 
Perhaps I can keep it together. Perhaps I can keep it together well enough. Perhaps I can sort of, you know, white knuckle my way to God through life from here on, through effort and striving. And friends, that that may be right. Um, I mean, in a sense, it, it it does make for very driven and often very morally upright people, doesn't it? Now, that may be a right application of the passage, and perhaps he is a legalist, you know, a do-my-way-to-God kind of a person. I think he is, as we'll see. But must we also say, then, that Jesus is a legalist too? Because look at Christ's response to him. What's Jesus' conclusion here in verse 28? If we read from verse 27, so the man answers the question, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. And that is straight from Deuteronomy 6. Debbie read it to us a few moments ago. And the last bit, that is straight from Leviticus 19. He's quoted scripture at Jesus almost word for word. This is what I feel that I must do to inherit eternal life. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. What must I do? Well, do that. Do those two things, love the Lord your God, love your neighbour as yourself. No, friends, it seems to me that being a legalist might be part of the man's problem, but I suspect it's slightly more subtle than that. Remember, he's an expert in the law, he knows God's Word, back to front, even Jesus applauds his answer here. Uh, But his trouble, I think, is this, if we look at just the words that he's given us. I think his trouble is this, when I read the law of God, I'm reading it with eyes for me and my eternal life, it takes, the law of God takes my gaze no further than me. I think that's the man that we meet here. What must I do to inherit eternal life for me, do you see? And the irony is that the summary that he has led Jesus to, pointed Jesus to, just won't let him live that way. Because look at the very commands that he's pointed to. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself, do you see? Go and do that outside of yourself, to God outside of yourself, to others outside of yourself. Take your eyes off you, lift your gaze from just yourself, would you? If you look in the law, but you will not find the Lord or learn how to love, then can you possibly keep the law? Which is where our second question takes us. I think think that's the horizon. It's not just what must I do, it's what must I do. That's kind of his issue. Jesus is no legalist. He knows, Jesus knows that we, we sin and we fail and we fall. We cannot do our way to God. But in this stroke of genius, this expert in the law has put his finger on the the very two commands that might actually lead to his own healing, might draw him outside of himself, if only he would go and do them. But he has to be willing to do them in the spirit that they were intended. And to say the least, well, verse 29, things do not look good for him, do they? Uh, So, do this and you will live, the end of verse 28. But he wanted to justify himself. So, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? 
In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and and wine, the wine being a disinfectant, the oil being a a soothing uh, balm kind of a thing. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, I know some of us are newer to church and the Bible and and all the rest of it, but for most of us here, how many times have we read that story or had it read to us? What, a hundred? Hundreds, probably, some of us, I suspect. Now, for the first time this week, I, I think I spotted an irony here that at least I hadn't seen before. I think it's subtle, but I suspect it's deliberate from Luke here. I wonder if, as, as readers... Uh, we see this religious leader come up to Jesus, looking for life. Uh, May I say a religious leader, an expert in the law, one of those that we're beginning to see in Luke's Gospel as a pretty hostile, uh, uh, you might say a natural enemy of Jesus, hostile and um, hateful toward Jesus, hurtful in, toward him in the plans of God as things work out across Luke's gospel. We're starting to see that portrait among the religious elite. So here comes a natural enemy of Jesus, half dead, spiritually speaking, looking for life with no one to spiritually help him, do you see? It's as if he is very much, even though he doesn't know it, like the one who is uh, naked and half dead at the side of the road. Will Jesus stoop to help him? Do you see? Jesus tells him a story of a Samaritan, uh, and I think our ears are supposed to say something, or, you know, we're supposed to hear something like a stinking dirty Samaritan of all people. That's kind of the, the, the rhetorical value of it. Jesus tells him a story of a Samaritan who sees a half dead man crosses the road to be with him and looks after him until he is restored to life. In other words, I think Jesus is supposed to, we're supposed to see that Jesus is doing right in that very exchange exactly what the Samaritan is doing, helping this natural enemy, seeing him restored to life. Do you see? I think it's subtle, but I suspect it's what Luke would have us see. Um, I'm confident of this though, Luke wants us as readers to come to Jesus in the end, not just to love like the Samaritan, but to find life with Jesus. If we, uh, if we want to learn to love our neighbours, if we want to learn to love God, if we want to find life, then Luke wants us to come to the Lord, who loves us, who has come for us, who crosses the road, who doesn't just cross the road, he went to the cross for us. If we will not see that Jesus has been a neighbour to us at our half-dead, beaten and broken 
state, left at the world's end with nobody to love us, then I don't think we've fully grasped the Jesus that Luke is presenting um, uh, to us in uh, this passage. Anyway, um, it, it, maybe I'm being overly subtle, I don't know, see what you make of it, let's chat about it afterwards. Anyway, the third question, which of these three? Which of these three? Because verse 36 is how the story wraps up. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy on him. And I don't know, what do you make of his tone? What do you suspect his tone was? I get the impression he probably wasn't overly thrilled about having that answer extracted out of him at that particular point. You know, is he, I don't know, is he reluctant? Um, the one who had mercy on him. Has, he, has it kind of got at him? Has Jesus actually managed to get his claws into this guy? Uh, is he feeling convicted at this point? Um, some folks want to say, um, ah, look, he, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. You know, such is his prejudice. He won't even name him as he's named in the story. Uh, instead, he refers to the, the, the one who was a neighbour in this roundabout way, oh, it was the one who had mercy on him. And look, very likely, he did have a thing against Samaritans. Uh, we suspect, you know, piecing things together, he's an expert in the law, he would have been from the south, from Judea, almost certainly, the Samaritans being way up in the north, uh, sorry, sorry, in between, in the middle, uh, between Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Judea, uh, sorry, uh, let me explain this one more time, Judea in the south, where Jerusalem is, the temple is, all of that, Samaria in the middle, Galilee in the north, the Samaritans were uh, not the loved ones by any stretch. So our expert in the law here, almost certainly from the south, from Jerusalem, from the religious heartland, he wouldn't have given Samaritans the time of day, very likely, if the stereotypes hold. They were religiously confused, polluted, compromised, however you want to put it, can't even bring himself to say the word. Oh, the one who had mercy on him, I suppose. Which of these do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Is that what's going on? Maybe, maybe it is. Our expert in the law here, um, I have no doubt that he could relate to the other two characters far more readily, far more readily. Um, he probably knew countless priests. If he's an expert in the law, he's at least spent time in Jerusalem if that's not where he lives. I'd say that that's beyond doubt. Jerusalem is where priests worked, that is where the temple was. He probably had friends amongst the priests. Plus, he knows the law. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and if, if we, um, so that means that he knows all of the laws surrounding the priests. So as Jesus runs through this story, a priest happened to be coming along the road, he, this lawyer is doing the maths and he's thinking to himself, well, I know the laws about priests. A serving priest comes across a naked man that he suspects is dead well, a serving priest must not defile himself by touching dead bodies. So he crosses by on the other side of the road. I guess that kind of makes sense. But hang on a second. If he was a serving priest, then what is he doing heading toward Jericho? Uh, no, he can't have been serving at the temple at the time. And the guy wasn't actually dead in the story. He was half dead. 
Why didn't he just go and check? Why didn't he just go and see? Now, the Levite, right? Again, doubtless uh, our lawman knew dozens of Levites, probably had them as friends. Why didn't the Levite stop? I don't have any idea. I don't think we're given any idea as to why the Levite didn't stop. Sometimes in life, we've got a chance to help, don't we? And we just don't. Maybe because we don't want to get involved, to use that kind of gutless euphemism for fear. But the Samaritan does. Here he comes. And it blows the stereotype apart, doesn't it? Which of these three... Which of these three, O expert in the law, seems closer to God now? Which of these three would know that he will inherit eternal life? Which of these three? See, I think the difference between the man's question and Jesus' question is everything. Ask not, who then is my neighbour? You know, how many must I love? Uh, in order to be able to inherit eternal life for myself. No, ask not who is my neighbour, ask rather what kind of neighbour am I going to be? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy. The one who had mercy. Which, can I just make an aside here? Gosh, that is such an interesting answer, right? I know it's not uh, uh, the Samaritan. He hasn't answered it according to the way Jesus introduced the man. Uh, and it's not, he, he also didn't use the summary, you know, uh, so uh, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So he didn't say the Samaritan. He didn't say uh, the one who loved him. That would have been a good answer according to the story, wouldn't it? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself, the one who loved him, that would have made sense. And he didn't say um, the one who kept the law, that would have been a good answer as well because it's a summary of the law that they're talking about, which, you know, what's the... Uh, he didn't answer in any of those ways. Instead, he... The one who had mercy on him. Now, why do I think that's interesting? It's because on my read of the Old Testament law, and especially law in its narrow sense, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, mercy, do you see, it's not so much, and maybe I've got this wrong, this is my survey, mercy seems not so much a law that the people of God had to keep, one of the many rules that they had to abide by, something that they had to stick to. Mercy No, in those books of the Bible, if I've understood it rightly, is how God loves his people when they haven't kept the law, when they've strayed far from him, when really from God they ought to have it coming, but in mercy they don't. Now, I'm not sure if that's a fair or a perfect summary, but we could talk that over some more. I wonder if that's this lawyer's realisation. Loving your neighbour means treating them like God has treated me. He gave me life. He brought me home. He takes care of me. He pays my debt and he's going to cover it all and he's coming back for me one day. Which of these three? The one who had mercy on him. Does that kind of neighbourliness 
Does that characterise your life? Your life? Just as God has given his life for me, brought me home, taken care of me, pays my debt, will cover it all, is coming back for me, does that kind of neighbourliness characterise my life? Now, uh, in your life, in my life, um, who are the least likely and the last candidates for my neighbourly love, I wonder? Who is it in your case? Um, It can sometimes, I think, be so deceptively close to home, actually. Perhaps it's that sibling, that one sibling that, you know what? I mean, you love them, but you just will not soften towards them. Uh, Perhaps it's the gay person in your friendship circle or in your workplace. Perhaps there are genuinely, perhaps there's a genuinely poor um, or troubled person or family who lives uh, like literally over the back fence at your place and you get along like glowingly well with all of your other neighbours but not with them really. Um, Something I've noticed on social media just this last week is that some of my Australian Chinese friends are beginning to experience the fear, and I would say um, disproportionate and misplaced fear. Why? Well, because they look like the kind of people who might be carrying coronavirus. What an awful thing. As if being of Asian heritage warrants exclusion and suspicion and all of the rest. Uh, Now, friends, of course, I'm responsible for, you know, good public health measures, but I do want to say this. Let's do better than that in our neighbourliness. Let's do better than prejudice and fear, jumping to conclusions, not wanting to get involved. Who are the least and the last candidates for your neighbourly love? Fourthly and finally, don't you care? Uh, This time, though, the question comes on Martha's lips. Uh, We began with, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Um, And friends, I I think I've met people so driven to love their neighbour lavishly, selflessly, beautifully, giving their lives to loving their neighbour, so much so that they've not any time for God anymore, no life with God, no love for God. They've taken the love your neighbour as yourself and had it entirely replace the love the Lord your God. Now, Martha is not there but don't go there, I think Jesus is saying, which is why I've put these two passages together. So from verse 38, can we read there? It's the last point, we're nearly done. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? that my sister has left me to do the work by myself. Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Um, I do like this uh, one little phrase that Daryl Bock, an expert on Luke, he summarises Jesus' words to Martha like this. He says, it is better to be a listening disciple than an immaculate host. (laughs) 
which is true, but it just doesn't summarise the entire section. Um, that more broadly, c can you think of people in your life, your friendship groups, perhaps your own children or, or, or uh, relatives, who love their neighbour? And honestly, they love their neighbour better than you do. They are more selflessly given to the people around them, even the people way beyond them, at least from your vantage point. Uh, they are extraordinary at it, whose neighbours to them uh, just seem tragically a whole lot more important to them than God does, than God ever will. Um, I think I can think of a few friends like that, people I know now, people who I've known through life, and I've got to say, they will do good work. In fact, they are doing good work in all sorts of ways. And I'm glad for their efforts and their drive and the real lives that they're changing for the better because they are, and it's fantastic. But perhaps I'll put it like this. I do see it as a quiet tragedy that they have so little interest for a love that is so rich and so inspiring and so inexhaustible and vast as Christ's love for this world and for them. And I do fear that it will shrivel them up over time, some of them at least. Why? Well, because loving, I think, is hard. Especially if you don't have this anchor in your life from the Lord Jesus that I am loved. And I do fear that they begin to believe that the pinnacle of love in this world might just be their own that they're the only ones really doing it. Perhaps that's being a little bit uncharitable, at least towards some of them. Don't you care? Asks Martha. I think Jesus is precisely where we need to go to learn to care. That's how he's flipping it around. To learn what care actually costs and looks like, to learn how care looks in real life. Do you remember? He's on his way to Jerusalem to find the life that we so uh, uh, long for, for ourselves, to be able to love our neighbours well and to be able to share with the people around us a lasting life. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Friends, let's conclude. Whether we choose to help that broken soul may make the difference between life and death for them but why we choose to help or not may well decide life and death for us. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Let's pray together. Our God of mercy, our God of grace, you have not treated us as our lovelessness deserves. May your ways be our ways. You've not driven us away or left us for dead. Christ came into death for life and out of love for us. May your ways be our ways. Lord God, we do ask for a refreshing. Would you please rekindle our delight and our joy, our lightness and our colour at the love of God for us. May Christ not only fill us with light and warmth, fill us, but radiate out from us. So Father, we pray for our relationships, we pray for our friendships, we pray for our 
next door neighbours. We pray for our workplaces and more. Would you teach us to unlearn a self-absorbed, limiting, lowering of love and to learn the love of Jesus for the sake of life, not only our own, but that of those around us. And in Jesus' name, we ask for your Holy Spirit's work. Amen.